I must admit, I'm at a bit of a quandary when it comes to you. On one hand, I despise slavery. On the other hand, I need your help. If you're not in a position to refuse, all the better. So for the time being, I'm going to make this slavery malarkey work to my benefit. Still, having said that, I feel guilty. Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, Scott, the so-called classical music podcast. That's what I kind of came up with last time. With finger flexion quotes? Yeah, yeah, whatever well, whatever we want to do with that. We're going to get a good uh, tagline in there, but I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of liking the whatever I'm feeling one, that day. A new one every week. <laughs> yeah. Um, so shout out to all of our returning listeners. Thank you so much. I've really, um, you know, y'all have really been making me feel great with everything that has, uh, have been, has been circling the internet and all the feedback y'all are giving us thank you so much welcome to the first time listeners um this is a an interesting little show here so (laughs) i hope you enjoy whatever this is there is no turning back at this point (laughs) uh before we get into our first movement um just a a couple of other announcements and shout outs uh uh thank you to uh jenna ross for um the 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 feature in the uh star tribune classical agitator and big big bold letters that was something uh, to see. So I guess, yeah, there, there's really no turning back now. It's in print. <laughs> uh, and then also shout out to uh, to Colleen Phelps down um, in Nashville at 91 Classical for putting together um, a nice feature um, of both of us. I thought it was uh, really great. And and yeah. you can check out uh, check that out on uh, their website. I'll be sure to link that in the description. Um, and I want to um, shout out Nathan from Denver. I've, I've you know I get so much feedback. I try to find uh, someone to say hello to at the beginning of every opus. So um, hello to uh, Nathan. He said he's gonna um, be coming through the Twin Cities this time next year as a composer. We'll be here for some things. So uh, Nathan, I hope you bring us some weed because I love to smoke weed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, anyway, so you ready? Do you have any announcements or shall we shall we proceed? Let's go. All right, movement one, time for us to check our accidentals here. So um, I want to start, Scott, by throwing out a big natural um, to everyone listening. I was expecting a lot of upset people concerning the Louis Farrakhan opus. I was getting nervous because you were nervous. Yeah, um, there were some notes there. <laughs> There, there were some people with some responses, but, um, but all in all, I, I think uh, people were really supportive and and really open to what we were talking about. So I just wanted to throw a natural out there. I was uh, anticipating something um, more than what it was. So yeah. what, what in your mind would have been the worst case scenario? The worst case scenario would be some um, viral thing happening on the internet talking about oh um, Triloquy is an anti-Semitic podcast and you know trying to cancel us which we're actually talking about a little bit today right? I was about to ask you was being canceled at all a concern well I think being canceled is always a concern and and you don't even have to be on social media for that I mean imagine if clearly not yeah uh, uh, if if something got around on the internet uh, long enough about you and you're not particularly plugged into uh, social media not even on Facebook book it would still have an impact on you now wouldn't it probably yeah Yeah. and too bad i wouldn't be online to see it (laughs) oh okay (laughs) don't laugh because you never know (laughs) that's true okay um so 
Um, my, my other, I decided to do a natural for this as well, because I wasn't sure what my response, uh, uh, should be. Um, Kanye for president, you voting for him, Scott? No. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Why, why aren't you voting for Kanye? Because I want a serious candidate. Well, what makes him not a serious candidate? I don't think that somebody comes in four months beforehand and goes, yeah, I'm going to be president. I, no, I changed my mind. Now I want to be president. I mean, but but look at the situation. And, and this is not a, a politics no, podcast. No, 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 I, I th- I, I'm much more interested in whether or not you're voting for him. I mean, I think it's worth a conversation. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying I'm so, voting for for Kanye so at all. So let's have that conversation. Okay. Um, right now we have a celebrity in chief, mm-hmm. and Kanye um, seemingly would be a celebrity in chief that is thinking about me more than uh, Donald Trump is right now. So what? Great. I mean, I'm not saying. Look, I'm not. I'm not not saying, but I'm not saying. I don't. Folks are going to think I'm really crazy for even considering this. I mean, look, I, I, I think everything is sort of worth a conversation. So what would a Kanye West um, president? Well, first and foremost, he's going to get some votes now that that we don't even have to argue about that. So whose votes are uh, are he splitting? Uh, is he taken away or, you know, in, in what ways do you think a, a Kanye West run uh, is going to impact the election if, I, if it ends up happening? I think that the, the simplest, most base description of it is he would do that in order to take black votes away from Joe Biden. And if anybody out there think that thinks that that would actually work, (laughs) then I don't know what to say to you. I, I wouldn't know what to say to a person who thinks that just because he's black meaning means that that's going to mean that he's going to pull all of the black votes away. I mean, and and I think that we've already seen and, and a lot of people would agree that Kanye is kind of on that sick and shut in list. You know, like we 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 acknowledge the, the musical genius he is, but we also understand that everything isn't quite wound up correctly. <laughs> some of the, some, some of those bolts need a little bit tight. And I don't know however you want to put it. So, so I, I don't I don't know if Kanye West would um, seriously um, take away from the existing black vote as much as he would, I think, get a couple people to go out and vote for him just to say they did. Sure. But at the same time, anybody who thinks that that is going to, you know, that people are going to do it just because he's black. And I'm telling you that that's what's that's the conversation that's happening in the conservative circles. I've seen it. So in the conservative circles, they're saying because Kanye West is black, He's going to pull the black. The the headlines are something along the lines of, you know, Biden campaign nervous with rumblings of of uh, and what it's from real clear politics or Daily Stormer or something like that. And that's all made up. And um, and, you know, for 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 folks who have been uh, listening to Triloquy for a while, uh, Kanye West is a composer who has mm-hmm. <laughs> who has come up on, on the podcast before. I, th- I think uh, when we did like a Christmas opus or something, we brought up uh, a couple of his Christmas tunes. No, there was um, Black Diamonds was the one that we excerpted. Oh, wait. So it was Diamonds from Sierra Leone. Um, yeah. Um, and 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 also the Christmas tunes, but because remember Christmas in Harlem or or whatever it was, or, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, but see that that Diamonds from Sierra Leone is a really important song to me because, and we talk about him running for president. You know that Kanye was really conscious and really paying attention to um, you know the 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 world uh, as it related to race, and in that song he really affirmed that. 
these this this jewelry, you know, that all these folks with money and access, you know, have, you know, have have blood all over them. A, a really interesting song. And in the end of the music video, um, he's playing two harpsichords at one time. <laughs> I, I just remembered that. <laughs> you know, there are there are people out there who don't even have one harpsichord. Oh, I know, and and Kanye West is just banging away on two. I think it's beating me over the head with it. Really, I think he's showing off. Well, anyway, Kanye twenty twenty. I suppose for those of you who all I'm saying all I'm saying is that I saw the video from when he went to the Oval Office for that meeting, and no, I'm not voting for him. And and nobody's mad at you for it, okay? Yeah, I'm, that's fine. <laughs> All right, so um, I have uh, one more little accidental, but I know you had uh, th- there was a uh, a cancel culture um, article that that uh, yep. made it across your desk. J.K. Rowling and what 149 other? Uh, how has uh, the the uh, speech been going? Uh, entitled rich white people. <laughs> Not all of them are white now. <laughs> no, 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 not all of them are white. And, and in fact, uh, some of them even have fatwas against them. <laughs> okay. Um, and, uh, and so some academics and artists and, and writers have come together to bemoan uh, the growing cancel culture. Yes. That they have. Go, go ahead. Have you got it pulled up? Yeah, so this came out in uh, Harper's Magazine on uh, July 7th. Is there one byline? I mean, I know there, there are all these celebrities and stuff who signed and off And everybody's on it. got their own version on it, so take your pick. Okay, well, um, and, and for folks who have yet to read this or, or, or don't even know about this, what, what is, what, how, how would you sum it up? Um, it's uh, basically what I interpreted it was uh, there are some people who are uh, – taking the uh, attack on free marketplace of ideas and applying that to art and music and and words and uh, are warning of a pendulum swinging in the opposite direction of dogma uh, becoming something that guides uh, what we read and listen to and, and think. So, I mean, basically, it sounds like what they're saying is, well, don't completely cancel the other side because we're erasing discourse and argument and, and debate and all that in the in the process. My thing is by acknowledging the validity. I don't think some of the things that I oppose deserve to be validated. I mean, especially when we're talking about um, being an anti-racist, anti-racism work. Mm-hmm. Racism does not deserve a place of validation in 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 my book i don't see what's wrong with canceling out those right those ideals and some of those individuals the best we can i agree hate speech should be taken out but um i i don't think that just because somebody has an opposing viewpoint and they are able to make an argument for it i don't think that they need to be silenced Mm -hmm. um and you know we can apply this to radio formats um let's talk about Cult, uh, country music formats yeah. and, and the new country, right? Um, what is it? What is country music associated with for you? I mean, like I said, and what we're going to get into in the second movement, as soon as I hear that slide guitar, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm somewhere I don't belong. Okay. I need to walk right back out the door. Right. Okay. <laughs> get in my so, car. Or, um, you know, uh, boots and pickup trucks 
and good old boys. Sure. Right? Yeah. Maybe there's. I'm sure there's a Confederate flag somewhere. Okay. There's now. That's that's where I'm interested in getting to. Okay. Because that doesn't make it into the videos. Yeah. But it is in the fabric. Yeah. That in the that culture. Some, of right. It. That some people will assume that because you're listening to. Uh, I'm I'm not even familiar enough with country music to name an artist that that would be current these days. So, yeah, right. So let's just say Travis Twit, Travis Tritt. Sorry, <laughs> uh, let's uh, let's just say that you're listening to some country music, right? Yeah. Um, how many steps away are you from the racism and white supremacy? I mean, not many. It by, wouldn't by seem a, like to me. Just right. Okay. Just by assumption. Yeah. Right. Um. But the thing is, is that there are plenty of country artists out there who aren't racist. Oh yeah, uh, I mean, know? and we we so, talked about one of them last time. Didn't sure, we? We time for sure. Last. And 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 so my point is, great. You've got however many radio stations that play that, and you have uh, country music videos, whatever channel that is. Yeah. Okay. So there's an outlet for it, and you got to go find it. And I think that's fine. It's when it's hate speech, hate speech, and you know, uh, hurting minors and yeah. things like that. You got to squash that. Yeah. You got to squash that. Yeah, there, there's no place on the other side. So, I mean, in, and let's try to give some of these folks uh, the benefit of the doubt. When, when when they talk about not completely canceling out the other side for the sake of discourse, what do you think is a fair example of, um, specifically when it comes to um, DEI work, you know, mm-hmm. racial equity and all that, what is something on the other side of the argument that you think deserves a, a, a place, even though you don't necessarily agree or think it's the... The other side of the argument on this article that came out, this, well, uh, I mean, because, this open letter? Well, yeah, because think about what they're saying. They're like, well, you know, we're, we're turning certain things right. into dogma, so right. where that, we can't erase the discourse. Well, what is this this uh, hyperbolic, or not hyperbolic, but this, you know, uh, uh, whatever discourse that, that they're, they're thinking of uh, that, that you think should be there, you know? I mean, I, I, don't even, I can't even really think of an example. I, I think that one of the things that they were really trying to point out is that we can't get into a situation where anything that even minutely differs from this new progressive norm needs to be shut down. Um, m- meaning that if you're not 100% behind whatever the group has said is what we're, what we're about, if you dissent with that, then you're you're canceled. Then you're done. Right. I I just don't understand what is being protected. So in, in this in this open letter, you know, they're they're saying we're we're turning one side of the argument into a dogma, and and if you don't agree yep. with it, you're you're erased. So, you're I shunned. Mean, so so what is the I don't know. Maybe what, what is the other side of it that we should be accepting? Is, I, I is don't what know. I'm, what I'm asking. What is being protected? What 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 do we fear in getting a, rid of if you know certain things um, become truths, become b- become ways we treat each other. It, it yeah. just becomes regular for racism not to be a thing. There's no argument. There's no discussion there. You know, maybe maybe J.K. Rowling thinks that she should be able to say negative things about trans people because that's what happened, right? Yeah, over and over and over again. Well, um, Winton Marcellus okay, so signed is, this, is she, and, and now, and if and if you want to see just how how divisive it is, yeah, there are some people that signed on to it and then went, oh, I shouldn't have signed on, and then Fox News jumps on that and they're holding those people up, the people who said, I'm sorry that I signed it, 
But it seems like the the more conservative side would be for this open letter as right, it exists. Right, but it's a it's a whole bunch of lefties or perceived lefties oh, who are, that are okay. on the list. Oh, so the ones who jumped out and mm-hmm. and came back are you goodness gracious, I don't I don't have time for all that. Um do you have anything else concerning this? I, I think people should read it and and, and really there, think about it. But there there is there are good points to this letter and um, I think that some of the first backlash that you're going to see is uh, a bunch of people with entitlement want you to <laughs> let them play however they want. But uh, I would really encourage you to read some of the opinion pieces that respond to it. I'm, I'm looking at this last sentence here. If we won't defend the very thing on which our work depends, we shouldn't expect the public or the state to defend it for us. Mm-hmm. I mean, as I think about that, as it applies to, you know, our work, even that, I, I think we should be able, I think it's our charge to critique this, you know, again, so-called classical music for what it is and, and the role that it's played and the things that, you know, we fight against. I, and, and I don't think that means that the public won't defend classical music. I think they can be along with us in recognizing the shortcomings, acknowledging those things and, and, and applying that to how we traverse all of this in the future. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, uh, there'll be a link to that in the uh, description. Just uh, go take a look at that. Um, but I have one more accidental before we get into the second movement. So, um, it, it seems like this happened like right after we taped uh, last week, but the band Lady Antebellum. Oh, yes. Okay. They, uh, you know, since, since the, the great white awakening of racism in the country, they decided then that the name Lady Antebellum is a little um, uh, insensitive. So they decided that they wanted to go by Lady A. Now, there was a, a woman who uh, has been, you know, performing since, uh, and she did an interview on uh, CNN that I watched a few days ago, uh, says she's been uh, performing since 1987 over on the West Coast, I believe, who goes by Lady A and has always gone by Lady A. So uh, Lady Antebellum wanted to um, cut the word Antebellum and go go by Lady A. Which, half golf clap. Well, I mean, not even that, because y'all have decided now that ante- no, antebellum to, is problematic. I'm, right. I'm getting to that part, though. But, but you're, you're, you're joining up, so half, <laughs> half, sure. half uninspired clap. Right. So, yeah. So some, so some of y'all are proud of them for that. Yes. Woo, 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 all that. So, um, and, 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 you know, fast forward, you know, a, a, a little while, it turns out that Lady A from, you know, the West Coast, this black, um, uh, who I would call a blues singer, I think she describes herself like uh, in, in that way, um, wants $10 million from them. And, and people are like, oh, that's ridiculous, da, da, da. And then Lady Antebellum, the band, has to um, announce that, uh, unfortunately, this is going to have to go to court so they can use Lady A. So uh, in her interview on um, CNN, Lady A, uh, she talked about how there were talks of them both using the name, but um, but what she said they don't understand is that as a band, they are this big entity, and she is just a singer. So if they take the name Lady A as well, when you Google them, when you look them up, you, don't you have find all mm. of them and not her. And, you know, even earlier I was looking up a, a, a tune and that was the case on YouTube. I mean, I, I could Google Lady A now and, and kind of prove the point she's making. Yeah, you see her show up with the band only because it's in news stories. Right. That's it. So as soon as that falls off the news cycle, Lady A will will not be 
showing up in your Google searches. Right. So so why this is important, why this is a, a poignant moment, um, A, I think, um, you know, when we talk about, again, this cancel culture, we just got talk, done talking about this open letter. You know, this is another sort of canceling, uh, a sort of erasing that is born from, you know, these power structures that run along the lines of racism. Now, you can say all day that, oh, Lady Annabellum isn't racist and they changed her name and it's just unfortunate that's his, that this happened and, and whatever. You know, you can say all of that. But at the end of the day, you have these singers, these white singers with, excuse me, all this money and all this access. And then you have, um, you A know, this, this individual woman it. who's been doing it since before, almost before they were born. Who's been which grinding is it out. You know, and then and and yet, you know, the band has has the has uh, the the final say and and all that sort of thing. I'm going to bring up a Ryan Hoglier reference. Okay, okay, because the he, composer, right? Ryan Hoglier comes out with a new piece of music that he hasn't, you know, he hasn't been heard from in a couple of years, and the response in town by people was, "Glier's alive." <laughs> okay, so yeah, for somebody who does not listen to country radio, I didn't even know that Lady Antebellum was still around. And I'm sure maybe they've had some hits since the and, 90s. Or. And I'm looking at, since the 90s, they were formed in 2006. Oh, wow. So so what do you so you thought they were a 90s band? No, 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 no. No, what I'm saying is I thought they were already gone from the scene. Oh, I thought they okay. Had already, I thought they had already had their flash in the pan. And hey, if you're still making records and you're still getting people to come out and see your shows, more power to you. The problem is, is that a woman who has been doing this before you um, I I think is due a li- if she's due something. If you're going to take the fact that you've got a recording house behind you and a contract and a, a marketing budget, and if you're still recording and doing shows, and all of a sudden taking all the oxygen out of the Google searches to find Lady A, then yeah, I think that you should give her a couple bucks if you're going to go by Lady A. And personally, I think 10 million is a nice round number. I think that would be perfect. So if you're asking me, that's what I say as well. Um, And I'm actually going to bring this back up a little bit in the fourth movement today. So I think we'll we'll go ahead and and, and give it a rest there. Um, And and we can go ahead and uh, transition into our second movement, talk about uh, what music struck a chord this week. Um, As we listen to a little bit of music, Music, um, by the real um, Lady, a. Lady A. And, and you know, I, I, I scroll through a, a few things, um, and I think this song is, is kind of poignant. You know, it's called Doing Fine. And, you know, after all this is done, I, I'm sure Lady A is, is, is dealing with headache right now, wherever, you know, she is. Um, but all in all, I think it's going to work out. I, I, I'm glad this story came out. Um, and I'm glad that, um, you know, black folks are going to, you know, keep on going until we make sure that Lady A is doing just fine. Okay, movement two, strike a chord. So um, I'm going to let you go first. So you had some music you wanted to uh, talk about this week. What about Kebmo? Kebmo. Now, we had been on the Roots conversation yeah. recently. And I'm sure that in the record store, if you go to look for Kebmo, they're going to put him under blues or Americana or, or whatever. But I think that there's some roots to it because he relies uh, on his technique, which is impeccable on the guitar, and a, and a voice that is just so powerful that, I, you know, he's he's – 
uh, got a lot of recordings with bands, but he's somebody that could go out and play a solo show and knock your socks off. Um, the thing, the reason that I brought him up was because I'd, I'd been listening to him recently thinking about how I got back to actually practicing guitar and taking lessons again. There is a certain song that he does called Every Morning, and there's an attack that he does with the slide that stuns me every time and makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. There, there must be something among white people where if you stumble across a name that nobody else knows and it's different, that, nobody, you, know, the, that um, you feel like you're bringing it. Okay, so let's talk about the Christopher Colum- – what, what was it? The- yeah, Christopher Columbus syndrome. Yeah, okay. So um, I, I felt like I had – like I had discovered him, and this is a black artist He's we a, have yet to right, mention. <laughs> right, it's a black artist, and I and I felt like I was illuminating people to the genius or the bliss that was Kebmo. Mm-hmm. And you know, and as it turns out, he's a guy that's you know he's he was like a lot of blues artists. He gets on the circuit. Uh, he probably plays three hundred nights a year. Yeah. And records when he gets back home and everything. But to me, it seems like he's really holding on to some tradition. Um, that there is a sound that he's bringing out that is um, the opposite of the Lady Antebellums, the commercial country. Right, right. You know, it's the real music of people. And yeah, and and, um, and when I listen to it, you know what what you showed me, I'm just reminded of just an earthy sort of music. Maybe that's why they use the term roots when they talk about yeah. it. It it yeah. just seems just un how can I say just natural, uncorrupted. Yeah, un uh, uncorrupted. Um, and then you know. For me, you know, seeing a black artist, you know, do that is it just opens up a new world for me completely Mm. because that's not uh, a world in which I, you know, ever knew or expected folks that look like me to be involved in. But it's really interesting that, you know, you were talking about how recently you've been getting back to spirituals and and you're not a religious person. No. And and yet and yet (laughs) there, you know, like with um, some of these Americana uh, the four port harmonies and stuff like that. I'm not a religious person either, and those things make those things have me drop into my knees and testifying, you know. Uh, and and I think that there's something about Kebmo's music that does that. To, that it rings inside me in a way that I can't adequately describe. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe I have a connection to this music in you know some past life. I don't know. Yeah, it, it, it's something how. You know, music does that. When you know, it's the done power well. of music. Yeah. Done well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, you know, so, you know, we're talking about roots and we're, we're here doing our due diligence on <laughs> try to try to seek the praises of that music. And, and I have really, Scott, 
been doing my best to um, get into some of this country, as I promised I would, you know, <laughs> with an open mind. Um, several people got back to me um, following um, our conversation ab- about country and roots from a couple of weeks ago yeah. and saying that, you know, um, I need to look up Charlie Pride. You know, he's this uh, yeah. black country singer who who really uh, shook up the game. So um, I've been listening uh, to, to some Charlie Pride. And, you know, I, I told you before we cut the mics on, as soon as I hear that slide guitar, it's just I, I just feel just in danger because of of the of the culture that sure. I have always had to attach to that music. And, and of course, I'm opening my mind up. And, you know, um, you know, we pulled up Charlie Pride on uh, Lawrence Welk, which was, <laughs> you know, really cool to, to see. And, and we heard him um, uh, sing this song between you and me and. You know, I think it just speaks to, um, you know, why so many songs um, are love songs, because like love, you know, the feelings of it um, are universal and and really come out through music in, in a beautiful way. And, and and I have to say that that Charlie Pride song in particular is one that I've really started to uh, appreciate. So I feel so blue sometimes I Now, of course, if we're going to talk about country music at all, I need to, um, you know, shout out, you know, East Tennessee, where I moved here from. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Dolly Parton is a is a patron saint there, of course to, to say the very least. And, um, you know, as I was listening to the Charlie Pride, that song in particular, I was reminded of a song that I had to learn for a virtual uh, graduation ceremony a little while ago that I performed at. You know, 2020 is a weird year, but right. <laughs> um, but um, it was requested that I perform um some rendition of Dolly Parton's um light uh, light of a clear blue m- morning you know mm. and I, and I and I have to think now because you know again country is just a, a genre I don't know but you know learning that song and and hearing what Dolly is saying about you know just going through the night and struggling and finally getting that freedom you know amen you know as we were saying you know it it just really strikes strikes a chord with you you know just as this movement is 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 titled I've been Looking for the sunshine You know, I ain't seen it in so long But everything's gonna work out just fine And everything's gonna be alright It's been alright Do you know Crystal Gale? No. I'm going to play some Crystal Gale for okay. you. Okay. You're going to like this. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll play some Crystal Gale for you, and we'll talk about it next week. All right, all right. Well, um, so um, today's guest uh, for the uh, third movement is my dear friend uh, Cesar Trevetta. He lives in uh, New York, um, is is a Beethoven specialist, and, and has studied all sorts of uh, uh, composers and, and maestros. He has a, um, a really great book out on Arturo Toscanini, um, that I would recommend. Mm. But um, in some of his studies um, on um, a man named Pete Seeger, he discovered um, for himself the uh, the story of a man, 
excuse me, named Paul Robeson. Mm. And, um, you know, Scott, I actually, the first time I heard Paul Robeson's name was um, Bill Morlock. You know, your friend Bill, uh, Bill Morlock just in passing said something about him, you know, when we were talking about, you know, what we're doing on Triloquy. And I wrote his name down and, and I kind of just uh, forgot. But talking to Caesar, you know, he really woke me up to um, this this man's, you know, story that was so important and uh, that somehow blew by me, you know, just as we were talking about last week with Louis Farrakhan being a violinist, we have this black man who many consider one of the world's first celebrities, you know, period, black or otherwise, right, a um, a champion uh, football player, um, a, a great actor, I mean, a great looking man, you know, I should say, and then this this incredible uh, baritone who really used spirituals and and songs uh, from the working class in an effort to, you know, bring folks together and and bring on this revolution that, you know, we're trying to talk about and, and, and edge uh, toward today. So, um, yeah, uh, Caesar and I just uh, sort of sit and, and he tells me about uh, what he's learned about uh, Paul Ropes, and I've learned so much about him uh, in the process, so I I hope uh, those of you listening will uh, will hang out to um, learn about him uh, as well. Um, but a- as we transition, who is uh, who did you just say that you're going to uh, let me listen to? Crystal Gale. Crystal Gale. How about we how about we listen to a little bit of Crystal Gale to get us into this third? Oh, room? you know how to get me. Take me home, you silly boy. Put your arms around. Me home, you silly boy. All the world's not around without you. Yeah, I went to the New York Public Library. Um, I was a freshman in high school, I was 12, and they had a room called the Record Room, and it was just a room from floor to ceiling lined with uh, bookcases filled with vinyl. And I didn't know what I was checking out. I just took one randomly off the shelf and took, checked it out and took it home. And it was Mozart's Sixth Symphony, Kershaw 43. Oh, wow. Okay. And it just really turned me on. And um, uh, then uh, my sister's boyfriend gave me a Christmas gift of uh, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, uh, a, a vinyl recording. So I used to listen to that all the time. And then... Um, uh, the high school band director had been a uh, substitute trumpet player in the NBC Symphony under Toscanini. So oh, wow. uh, he used to regale us with stories about uh, playing with Toscanini. And that kind of got my interest. I started reading about him. So um, that was it. I was studying piano, but I never wanted to be a pianist. So I never wanted to learn piano repertoire. So I fought with my piano teachers. I just wanted to do <laughs> exercise, just get some technique and then, and then just be an ocean and absorb chamber repertoire and leader and opera and symphonies. I just wanted to become a really good sight reader to, okay. to digest all this music. So uh, my, my pianistic skills stopped at a certain point as a teenager. They, they didn't develop from there. I see. <laughs> do, do you feel like you're a decent sight reader these days? Well, you know, I can I can learn my scores and that's that's, you know, so it's just a tool. But I, I, I refuse to play publicly. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, some, something else that I really find fascinating um, about you is that you have seen so much in the city of New York. These days, we talk a lot about folks who, you know, have moved there and, and found fame. But, you know, you, you're you're tried and true for, you know, many decades now as, as a, a, a New Yorker. How, how do you how have you seen the uh, arts landscape there sort of uh, evolve over the years? You know, you mentioned the NBC Symphony. That's not a thing anymore, but there are lots of other uh, groups sort of uh, on the scene, right? I think the biggest uh, thing is maybe in the last few decades, there's just been um, an incredible uh, blossoming of uh, small opera companies, not just in New York, but all throughout the United States. And of course, um, regional orchestras and and, um, bigger orchestras that, for example, in 1967, when Robert Shaw took over the Atlanta Symphony, it was mm-hmm. not a full-time orchestra. They had day jobs. They rehearsed in the evening. And uh, by the time he left 21 years later, they had a $20 million annual budget you know, back in the 80s. Yeah. So a lot of orchestras have become full-time, 50, 52-week seasons, and, and there's just a lot more orchestras and a lot more opera companies this notion that classical music is dead or it's dying or it's is is ridiculous. You know, you're mentioning opera actually serves as a really great uh, segue into the next question I wanted to ask you. You know, um, we're, we're talking about Paul Robeson today and you can't talk about Robeson without um, talking about race and the implications of that conversation in, um, in classical music. Um, how do you think uh, the way we see um, race when it comes to folks like uh, Leontine Price, you know, Marian Anderson, Paul Robeson, who, who we'll talk about, how do you see that conversation um, having evolved over the years, really including the the idea and the challenges of race in two conversations about this art form? Well, when you say race, we have to then insert the word racism. Sure. Yeah. Uh, there's a wonderful baritone named uh, Raymond Martin uh, who uh, sang, uh, I think, a tour of Porgy and Bess with uh, the Met years mm-hmm. ago in their pre- previous production and uh, sang many wonderful performances uh, in Central Park with the New York Grand Opera and in Carnegie Hall, a lot of uh, Verdi baritone roles. I'm using her as an example. And, uh, you know, he's very dark, very dark. And the artistic director of the New York Grand Opera had commented, uh, he kept hiring him, they worked beautifully together, and he sang many of the leading Verdi roles in the in the Verdi cycle of all his twenty eight operas they did in Central Park. But the 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 conductor said, if only he weren't so dark, this has really affected how far he can go in his career. Paul Robeson uh, is the is the person that we're here to talk about today. And, um, you know, I, I looked at uh, some of the information that you sent me and did some reading uh, on my own. I was really uh, shocked to learn that Ebony had named him among the, the top most important black men in American history. You know, that's so incredible. Yet 
his is a name that so many people just don't know. I mean, why, why is Paul Robeson this figure um, that, that we should really hail as one of America's most important people? Well, let's talk about some of, some of the outstanding achievements. Um, he was awarded the Spingarn Medal by the NAACP. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was awarded honorary doctorates from Rutgers, Hamilton, Morehouse, Howard. Um, uh, he was a graduate of Columbia Law School. Uh, he made many Hollywood movies that he starred in. He was uh, hailed as a great Shakespearean actor playing mm-hmm. the, the, uh, the role of Othello uh, uh, here in the United States and especially in London. Uh, and, and so there were so many achievements. I mean, my goodness, there's a mountain named after him in Kazakhstan. There's a postage stamp uh, that, that bears his image. There's four streets named after him in New York and New Jersey. And so the idea that he'd be erased from textbooks, from history books, is just mind-boggling. I know some uh, young millennial friends that live here in Harlem that never heard of the name Paul yeah. Robeson. Wow, wow. And, and you know, one, one of his uh, famous quotes was, you know, the artist must elect to fight for freedom or for slavery. And, and he, you know, very, uh, he was very outspoken um, about what side of that, uh, you know, he lived on and he worked on both in and outside of music. Um, would you consider that decision uh, one that had an impact on, um, you know, the way that he isn't remembered among many communities, the fact that he was um, canceled, as, as folks say uh, today, erased from history? Do, do you think that dedication to, um, to liberation and anti-racism played a role in that? Well, I think we have to just consider who his biggest influence was, and it might, may have been Frederick Douglass. Right. Uh, he studied his writings and speeches meticulously and uh, liked to quote him. And one that he used, one quote that he uh, repeated uh, a lot was uh, from Frederick Douglass, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. Um, but the thing about Robeson was <laughs> he, he was so beloved all over the globe because he made 300 recordings. He was a movie star. And so these recordings and, and movies were, were enjoyed by people down under in New Zealand and Australia and throughout Russia and Eastern Asia and India and China. <laughs> he was beloved all over the world. So he had an enormous platform. And once he decided to use it as an <laughs> activist, yeah. at it it really drove the course of his life. Yeah. In fact, uh, he announced at one point that he was re- retiring from, as he put it, commercial entertainment. <laughs> and so he would only use his art from that moment on to uh, further the causes that he dedicated his life to. Yeah, yeah. Most famously, um, from my perspective, anyway, uh, through his role on Showboat and the way that um, you know he he changed the lyrics and and put his own spin on the song "Old Man River." But before we get into that specifically, um, I, I want to talk a, a little bit about uh, you know you you mentioned his global um, impact and you know if you listen to him sing, you can obviously hear um, his respect and dedication to the Negro spiritual, you know that original American classical music. But it's not just that. There's a song of 
collective uh, that he performed uh, called Joe Hill that I understand had, you know, such a, a huge impact on uh, the conversation of, of the, the working class and, and, and how that sort of liberation uh, was in, important, you know, in his perspective. What, what, what can you tell us about um, that song, Joe Hill, who Joe Hill was and how Robeson used that um, as a tool in his fight for, for global liberation for the working class? Joe Hill was a copper miner in Utah, and uh, he was also a songwriter and an activist. And in 1915, he was uh, uh, executed. He had been framed on a murder charge and executed, and uh, many people felt that he was innocent. Uh, and so this song about Joe Hill was a favorite of Robeson's, and he sang it throughout his career. And there's a, I understand there's a specific part of it that you, that, that really uh, tickles your fancy, if I may use that phrase. <laughs> I never died, says he. I Yeah, it really is such a, a beautiful song. And, um, you know, uh, again, as I mentioned before, you know, the way Robeson used that song ended up having um, a, a global impact when it came to the the working class and, you know, uh, liberation uh, for those folks. But what, you know, history has proven to be a bigger example of that, as I mentioned before, was his role on uh, Showboat. Uh, what, what, what do you know about his role um, uh, in that film? You know, he used that song, Old Man River, uh, was his staple. Mm-hmm. And, and there's footage of him singing it from the movie version of Showboat and uh, uh, he, many recordings of uh, him in live concerts singing it. Uh, but the, the fascinating thing is that uh, early on in his career, he changed the, uh, some of the lyrics uh, uh, near the end, uh, the original lyrics are, I'm tired of living and feared of dying. And he changed it to, I must keep fighting until I'm dying. And what does that say to you, his decision to to change the lyrics like that? Well, he was a warrior. And uh, uh, especially this beautiful footage of one of the performances where when he gets to that point, and sings, I must keep fighting, and he shakes his fist in the air. Uh, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. He was an incredibly courageous guy. Um, you know, being born in 1898, his father was a slave. He right. escaped when he was 13. Right. But his father was highly educated at Lincoln University. He had already been studying Hebrew in preparation for his career as a minister. And so uh, as a boy, as a student, you know, his mother died uh, when he was only five mm. and his and his elder siblings had left the home. So he was just raised by his father and they had this very, very, very tight relationship. But his father was very, very strict. And one of the things he liked to do, not only to, to Paul, but to his siblings as well, was train them in, in the, the art of oratory. So when they had to uh, recite something for school, uh, his father would coach them at home or he was always on the debate team in high school. He won Mm. the debate team all four years when he was at Rutgers. And so his father was an enormous influence 
And for the rest of his life, he always would think to himself, how am I doing, Pops? And so uh, uh, his father instilled this incredible thirst for uh, languages and, and knowledge. And the idea that he mastered over 20 languages is mind boggling. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he was the only black student all four years that he was at Rutgers. And then he went on to Columbia Law School, but he didn't want to practice law because he saw the racism that was so prevalent in the in, in that field. And he didn't realize that he had this talent, that he had this incredible golden voice like honey. And he never thought that he could act. This was, this was his wife, his wife Islanda, that he married uh, when he was still in Columbia. She pushed him. And when she wrote his biography, she really wrote that he was lazy because uh, <laughs> he was so talented. Yeah. Uh, he didn't have that kind of discipline. She pushed and pushed and pushed him in those early years. So, yeah. So what I guess uh, uh, what I'm hearing you saying is that in that role in the movie Showboat, you know, he felt this obligation to, to you know, use that platform to say uh, what he needed to say, you know, to use those skills that his father taught him um, and really prioritize to, um, you know, help people understand what the reality of, of this country uh, was at that point. One of the reasons he's my hero is because he did away with all the formalities of musical presentation mm. and such. And and he didn't just, first of all, he was the first person who did a concert uh, that was comprised exclusively of what were called Negro spirituals yeah. back in 1925. It had never been done before. And that proved to the world that this music should be taken seriously and that it was not inferior to European uh, music. And so the, the idea of, of singing music that was of his heritage was crucial to him. And that's why he never sang opera. He refused to sing opera. He, had, he could have had an amazing career as an oh, opera of course, singer, yeah. but he didn't feel any connection to that European uh, heritage. So he only sang uh, songs that were either uh, uh, black secular songs or uh, religious spiritual songs, or then especially uh, songs of the working class. Yeah. And, and that was what drove him to study languages. Because he, he ended up living in London early on for, for many years because he was in plays. Eugene O'Neill was writing new plays for him and, and he was giving concerts. He was touring. So he was based in London. And it was there that uh, he began formally studying all these languages, you know, African languages and Chinese and Hebrew and Yiddish and Arabic. And it's, it's just mind boggling. But while there he befriended uh, other students that were from Africa that mm. later became uh, the presidents of uh, Kenya and Ghana and even Nehru, uh, 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 the prime minister of India. Oh, These were goodness. his friends. <laughs> He had some good company. <laughs> now, this, you know, this this love and respect for, um, again, that very American art form, the Negro spiritual. It seems like in 2020 that would have uh, that would be something that you know America would celebrate. You know, being uh, a shine, uh, a light being shined on that abroad. But you know, history shows that America didn't particularly 
um, have his best interests in mind or, or appreciated um, the work he was doing. I mean, I, I read that um, uh, th- there were folks trying to get uh, his name slandered in the uh, Ghanaian newspapers. Um, his passport was even um, uh, uh, taken away by the U.S. government for, for many years. I mean, w- what are your thoughts on that? You know, America's uh, very um, violent response to the work that Paul Robeson was doing internationally and domestically. Well, you know, the spirituals were uh, 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 an anchor for him. Uh, and uh, he would point out, he would speak from the stage. He never just gave a concert formally. He would speak in between the songs. Okay. <laughs> and, and that's where he had this outlet for his activism throughout his career. But he would speak about the spirituals and point out that uh, the spirituals helped the slaves uh, prepare to escape to freedom. And that Harriet Tubman was identical to Moses because she was an escaped slave and had returned to the South repeatedly to rescue others. Mm-hmm. And, and so he, he saw these uh, very direct parallels from the, the stories in the Bible of the, the ancient Israelites to his own people in, in a contemporary 20th century at that time. So the spirituals were for him, uh, uh, his, his uh, uh, I said, anchor or his foundation. And, you know, listening to him sing those spirituals, you can, you know, you can really just feel the emotion and, and the power behind, you know, what he was trying to say in between those songs at those concerts, as, as you've described. How about, how about we listen to a little bit of Paul Robeson uh, singing uh, one of those spirituals here? So, of course, you know, in addition to, um, you know, Paul Robeson's legacy being one that folks of my generation, uh, you know, weren't really exposed to on the same way that uh, we were exposed to others. um, The same applies, in my experience, to the Vietnam War. And that's something that Paul Robeson, you know, quite um, uh, openly um, had an opinion on. You know, I want to ask you, since, you know, you were there in that time, what were the implications of openly opposing uh, the Vietnam War. What did that mean back in those days? Way back in the 50s, before things heated up, we were sending uh, tanks and uh, planes uh, to prepare for this war. And he was criticizing it then. And, and he thought, why should young black soldiers from the United States be sent to shoot and kill people of color in Vietnam, mm. just just because of of, of the uh, imperialistic tendencies of the United States, that they have raw materials that we want. The same thing with um, uh, what was then called colonial Africa, the the colonial countries of Africa. He he created this organization in 1937, and was then the chairman of. It was called the Council on African Affairs. And it was its purpose was to uh, help with the liberation of the colonial countries of Africa, and this was a real thorn in the United States government's side, mm. uh, because Great Britain and the United States were the imperialists, and uh, the working peoples of the world were the the vast majority, but were oppressed by the imperialists, and so his his work on behalf of the um, indigenous peoples of 
Australia, for example, or of the uh, colonial countries in Africa, was very much uh, a part of his activism, just as much as the uh, racism in the United States, which, by the way, he um, compared to Nazi fascism. Mm. He considered that the American politicians who uh, allowed for uh, racism and and we have to discuss lynching, uh, yeah. he, he compared to and, and characterized as being fascist. So, you know, all of all of those things considered and, you know, again, you're uh, being able to personally uh, speak to being around, you know, um, when when things were, you know, a little more, how, how can I say, a little more unrested than they are these days, you know, all of that considered. Is it a surprise to you at all that uh, Paul Robeson's uh, legacy was kind of, you know, pushed to the side by this same American government? It's, it's such a uh, uh, tragic story. Um, after World War II, the black American soldiers who returned many of whom lived in the South, uh, were being lynched. 1946 alone, hundreds of them. And Robeson uh, was able to have a meeting in the Oval Office of the White House with President Truman. Oh, wow. And he headed up a delegation uh, and marched in there and demanded that President Truman uh, instigate some kind of uh, uh, legislation in Congress that would make lynching a federal crime. Mm. And uh, Truman refused. And Robeson warned him and said, look, there's just a limit to what my people are going to put up with. Uh, Whereupon Truman jumped up red in the face and uh, shouted, that sounds like a threat. And he abruptly ended the meeting there. That was in 1946. Lynching is still not a federal crime. Uh, and it's this, still happening in, in 2020. It's still happening. There's a bill that uh, an anti-lynching bill that passed the House of Representatives at the end of last year, the beginning of 2020. And, and then it was uh, to be voted on in the Senate. And it was uh, being uh, promoted by uh, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker. And it didn't, it didn't pass. There was, uh, they weren't able to pass it. So it's still... As we speak in July of 2020, it's still not a federal crime. You know, um, Paul Robeson uh, died in uh, 1976. And I think I'm remembering that the the funeral took place in New York. Is that correct? In Harlem. In Harlem. Yeah. yeah. What, what were, you, were yeah. you around? Were you aware of, of that uh, event? No, I never heard of Paul Robeson. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what? So what you know and, and what you've studied is is all in sort of retrospect, you know, after after the fact. Yeah, I, I was working on a documentary on Pete Seeger, the father of American folk music. Oh, and okay. and, and he had been asked by Robeson to uh, sing at a concert in Peekskill, New York in 1949. There was this uh, horrendous incident called the Trenton Six. Mm. And there were a group of uh, six young uh, black boys in New Jersey, in Trenton, who were accused of uh, committing murder, of the murder of William Horner, and were sentenced to death. And so uh, Robeson and Seeger gave this concert in Peekskill 
to raise money for the legal defense of this uh, Trenton Six mm. in 1949. And uh, so I heard about Robeson just, just studying about Pete Seeger. <laughs> oh, goodness. Wow. Isn't that incredible? Wow. And then I think it was about a year and a half ago, I had a hernia operation. And during my recovery, I had ordered these, these books about Robeson. So I could just lay, I could hardly walk. I was just recuperating and I started studying and I, and I just became transfixed, you know, and I've just been immersed in his life and, and music for the last year and a half. Wow. Maybe you've heard of, uh, of, of a historian uh, named Martin Duberman. I read some of his words um, and which, you know, he's talking about that funeral in 1976 and affirming that, you know, the lack of celebration um, is rooted in white America's inability to accept a black man who just wouldn't bend. And I felt like that was um, a, a really interesting um, way to frame it. You know, this man who just was not uh, going to take it, you know, a man whose legacy that we just don't really um, know about uh, as far as the way, uh, what we're taught in music school and our textbooks, you know, you yourself just um, said that, you know, you found out about him sort of in, 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 a, in a side way uh, sort of way. Um, are we beginning to see that shift? Well, music students, um, you know, of the next generation, um, do, do you see Paul Robeson being a part of what they understand to be um, the history of American classical music, you know, especially considering how impactful this individual was? I said earlier that he's one of my heroes, but so is Louis Armstrong. Yeah. And so is Nelson Mandela. Names we're a little more familiar with, right? And so is Beethoven. Uh, but, <laughs> for the record <laughs> but um the, the thing about uh music is that it's it has always uh played such a, an important role in in any kind of movement for justice for social yeah. justice whether it was a, a anti-apartheid in south africa when mandela was in jail for 28 years or the civil rights movement here uh you, you can think of the anthem we shall overcome mm-hmm. uh, and and robeson see robeson had come to this conclusion pretty early on, uh, which is very interesting. Um, His conviction was that the persecution of blacks was based on class, more so than it being based on race. Hmm. And his philosophy was, if there could be a united front of working class people, black and white, working class workers, that that would be the key to eliminating the the whole concept of white superiority because the white employers historically would poison their white workers' minds in order to pit the white workers against the black workers. Mm. So by creating a unified front between all workers, blacks and white together, that would uh, destroy the strategy of the industrialists, of the imperialists. Wow. So let's let's apply that idea to today, 2020. You know, we've, we've seen um, our country just kind of rocked by uh, racial injustice. The coronavirus has um, has really cut a lot of the working class off at the knees, you know, with the with the closing of, of so many businesses. Um, you know, how, how can how can Robeson's dedication um, to that racial equity and to liberation of the working class? You know, how, how do you think, you know, his his ideals can be turned into actionable items for for today's society? Well, 
back in 1946, he gave a speech in Madison Square Garden, and he stated that uh, this whole notion at the time of stop Russia, this whole communist scare, the Red Scare, the Cold War, th but th this cry, stop Russia, meant stop progress, maintain the status quo. It means let the privileged few continue to rule and thrive at the expense of the masses, mm. end quote. Mm. And when I read that sentence, that sounds just like Bernie Sanders, doesn't it? The fight, the fight that we are waging is not an easy fight. But I know you are prepared to wage that fight against the 1%, against the billionaire class. We have to talk about Russia. We have to talk about the Soviet Union. He went to Russia at the invitation of uh, Eisenstein, the, the premier uh, filmmaker in Russia, who wanted to do a, a film with Robeson about the Haitian Revolution. And uh, that's why he went there to meet with this filmmaker. They never made the film, but he was so blown away by what he encountered in Russia. No racism. Sure. He couldn't believe it. And uh, there's this incredible quote that he repeated throughout his life uh, where he said, for the first time, I feel like a real human being in Russia because of the absence of, of racism. And uh, so much so that in uh, the 30s, he enrolled his nine-year-old son in elementary school in Moscow because he didn't want his boy to be subject to racism in the United States. Wow. Wow. And he didn't live in <laughs> Moscow. His mother-in-law went to live with the grandson in Moscow while Robeson and his wife were always on a tour. They were always on the road. They, their main headquarters was in London and they'd come in and out of Moscow, but the boy was educated at elementary school in, in Moscow. So let's go back to, you know, stop Russia. How, how does, what was the relationship between those words and, you know, his love for this place that, you know, as you just laid out, treated him like he was a human being? He was beloved in Russia. And uh, after, during World War II, that was our ally. As soon as World War II was ended, that was our enemy. Yeah. And, and the Cold War started. And that's where he got into trouble because he wouldn't speak against Stalin. He wouldn't speak out against Russia. He wouldn't play into that whole narrative uh, uh, about the Cold War. And so he was accused of being a communist. And uh, there was this uh, Smith Act passed, which meant if you were a member of the American Communist Party, uh, you could be imprisoned for 10 years. So this, this whole series of, uh, of hearings, uh, Senate committee hearings, uh, whereby a lot of artists were dragged in and, and asked point blank, are you a member of the Communist Party? Robeson refused to answer the question. He thought it was an unconstitutional question. Mm. And he sarcastically said, would you like to come with me when I vote? And <laughs> you could read my ballot if you're so curious. But he, would, he, he, pleaded, he stood on the Fifth Amendment and he wouldn't answer those kinds of questions. Uh, but he got himself into a lot of trouble. Uh, he was convinced that uh, the, the whole idea of stop Russia, uh, stop the, the communist scare, that, that was so that uh, the United States and other imperialists could, could proceed 
without any obstacles. And he described what he was doing was not being a communist, it was being an anti-fascist. And he kept comparing the Americans, the American governments and the American government policies to fascism, which just drove them crazy. So as you alluded to earlier in 1950, uh, they forced him to surrender his passport because the State Department considered he was too dangerous. He was going around the world speaking out against the United States government and, and calling them fascists. Yeah. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't have it. So for eight years through the 50s, he was not allowed to leave the country. And even going to Mexico and Canada in those days didn't require showing a passport, but they told the border patrol, if, if he sh- tries to cross the border, don't allow him to. And if he does, we'll put him in jail and uh, for, uh, I think it was five years imprisonment and a $10,000 fine. So they kept him uh, from leaving the country for eight years. And they did more than that. Uh, record stores were not allowed to sell his records. Uh, radio stations couldn't play them. Uh, so he would do concert tours, but then venues, he could easily fill a, 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 largest concert venues, they wouldn't rent him the venues. And so then he went to black churches and he would go on tour around the country singing at black churches. And they stopped that too, because they they went to the banks and they they had the banks tell the churches, if you allow Robeson to to appear in your church, uh, we will foreclose on your mortgage. So it wasn't pedestrian. It, It was very active the way in which the government was trying to quell what he was doing and what he was saying. And he, and he would get around it. He was supposed to sing in Vancouver. They wouldn't let him leave the country. Uh, so he came back three months later. Uh, and on the Washington state-Canada border, they set up an amplification system. And he sang for thousands and thousands of people across the border that were gathered there to hear him. He did the same thing in Great Britain. He wasn't allowed to go. The Welsh miners have an annual song festival, and they wanted him to come. Uh, He wasn't allowed, so he sang through the brand new uh, transatlantic cable that had just been laid. And he would try to find ways to get around it, but eventually the government did succeed in silencing him. And uh, this brings up a a fascinating subject about protesting today. Right. And uh, if you don't mind uh, bringing up Louis Armstrong. Please. He was criticized by uh, many uh, prominent black uh, entertainers at the time for not participating in the uh, march, uh, the civil rights marches of the 60s. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was a very deliberate, uh, conscious decision. And he explained it by saying, I give money to the cause, but uh, I'm not going to march in the street. If someone were to swing, uh, take a swing to my face with a baseball bat and ruin my chops, a trumpet man is finished. Yeah. And, and, he, and, and as, as Robeson said, my song is my weapon. Armstrong considered his trumpet playing his weapon. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so to protect themselves, uh, I think it was very wise of, um, of Armstrong to protect himself. Uh, he was asked by a reporter, wait a minute, Mr. Armstrong, you're so you're such a celebrity. Do you really think you'd be beaten if you marched in the street? And he said, They would beat Jesus if he were black and marched. (laughs) With the example being, you know, tying this back to ropes and how being outspoken, you know, he, he wasn't physically hit with a baseball bat, but I think it's fair to say that his career was. 
I can't say it because I don't want the government <laughs> to come and kill me. Sure. But his, but his son, uh, Paul Robeson Jr., who wrote an incredible two-volume biography of his father, extraordinary, meticulously written. Uh, he died a few years ago. He was convinced that his father had been neutralized by the CIA. Mm. Uh, he was in Moscow in 1961. It was uh, three weeks before the Bay of Pigs invasion, and he was going to be meeting with Fidel Castro coming up. Uh, the government definitely did not want him to meet with Castro. And so he, he was in his Moscow hotel room in the early evening, and he told his assistant that he was going to go to bed early because he wanted to get up early and had uh, things planned uh, for the morning. So uh, the next thing was he was uh, several hours later found in that hotel room bathroom lying on the floor uh, in a pool of blood. He had slit both of his wrists. Mm. And uh, apparently what happened was there was this uh, big party in his room, which he didn't plan for. He told his assistant he was going to go to bed early. Sure. Uh, wow. and, and so it was at that party that something was put into his drink. And it's thought to be uh, when the government started experimenting with using LSD to neutralize uh, dissidents. And uh, so his son flew to Moscow and started asking all kinds of questions like, what do the blood tests show? What was in his blood? Yeah. Uh, and uh, he couldn't get answers to those questions. And uh, he, he was found uh, poisoned as well. He was at a dinner and asked for a cup of tea. And he thought the waiter looked strange. And the next thing he knew, he was hallucinating and, and had him, him and his father both ended up in a sanitarium outside of Moscow for some time. Uh, the son recovered. The father never recovered. He uh, was in and out of uh, mental hospitals uh, and clinics uh, in Russia, in East Germany, in London, in New York City. Uh, and uh, he was prescribed over 20 different drugs for depression and paranoia. And it was given 54 electroshock uh, treatments, which damaged his brain further. Uh, and so they, the government succeeded. Uh, the last 14 years of his life, he, he was unable to um, function in public. And he lived uh, at his sister's house in Philadelphia. And his, his wife had died before him. And his sister uh, cared for him those, those final 14 years of his life. It's an unbelievable tragedy. It really is. And it, it kind of just leaves me um, you know, feeling an even greater obligation to make sure that, you know, this story is included among the many when we're talking about not just music history, but American history and world history, you know, the ways in which um, a a person who has something to say and uses his art or even or her art um, to say that how they can be quelled by um, the very government, the very establishments that um, proclaim and allege to protect us and to and, and to have our our uh, pursuit of happiness um, in mind. It's it, it's so tragic and it ju it just underscores for me why uh, Paul Robeson's story is so important. I, I can't think of any other figure in history. Uh, you know, he was six foot three and a half, good looking man, and was. and an athlete. He was a professional football player and a professional yep. basketball player. That's how he made money to um, finance his education at Columbia Law School. Uh, so you know, th there was this incredible athletic achievement and uh, these, these Hollywood uh, movie star looks that he had. 
and yet he was the smartest guy in the room. And so when you combined his natural talent, his, his incredible success on stage and film, on recordings, and then when you combine that with his intellect, uh, when you hear some of this hearing from 1956 when he was dragged in front of the Un-American Activities Committee, uh, he owned that hearing. He took charge of it and owned it. And I think that's why the government was really afraid of him, because he was so brilliant. They had never come across any, anyone like that. I think today, the difference is that, uh, well, he was alone. You know, this is before uh, Baldwin and Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Yeah. This, this was a generation before them. And he was really alone. And and the, the NAACP was attacking him. You know, it's, it's uh, leader, uh, Walter White. Uh, he was really alone, and he was criticized for going too fast and going too strong. And and his response was, "How much longer do you want to wait?" Yeah, he refused. So he was alone. And uh, today, that's not the case. Uh, Pete Seeger put it beautifully. He said, uh, "What's going to change the world is not these big, uh, big organizations, but lots and lots and lots of." tiny organizations making these wonderful small causes, but the aggregate, the, the accumulation of all of that is what will affect change. So I guess today, now that we've, uh, now that we're in the middle of what I would like to th think is the beginning of a revolution, mm -hmm. I'd like to be optimistic about that. Uh, a dear friend of mine said, who's older than me said uh, recently, yeah, well, you know, those protesters in the streets, Eventually, they're going to get tired and they're going to go home. And then what? So I'd like to be more optimistic. I'd like to think this is only the beginning yeah. of, of this movement. And so the difference between when he was fighting really alone to now, where there's so many grassroots organizations popping up, uh, I, I, I think it's, it's I have a, a lot of optimism. But and hey, I'm just an ally. You know, I consider myself... Uh, a student of Triloquy University. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to play catch up. You know, I've enrolled in my first course is catch up 101 at Triloquy University. So I'm learning. <laughs> well, and, and and I'm learning from you again, you know, as I, as I said earlier, um, you know, the, the, the scholarship that you have really dedicated um, to this is, is so impactful. It, it's really um, you know, been another turning point for me. So I, I really appreciate the the work you're doing and and helping us all understand and remember um, how important Paul Robeson was. But I keep laughing instead of crying. I must keep fighting until I'm dying. And Okay, a huge, huge, huge thanks again uh, to Caesar for uh, talking to me. So I'll have um, his his links to uh, uh, his websites and all of his stuff uh, in the description of this and on the Triloquy um, website. Um, Scott, before we get into the Triloquy, you know, we were talking, I was telling you about um, the story of Paul Robeson earlier. And, you know, 
when we talk about um, cancel culture and, and all that sort of thing, we, we think about it as a peer-to-peer thing. But, mm-hmm. you know, here we are with the story of Paul Robes, and we, we, we have the United States trying to cancel a person. You know, the, again, those, those power structures uh, coming down. Do you think, um, you know, we're going to see more of that? Do you th- I mean, we saw it with Colin Kaepernick when, you know, it, when it comes to the NFL, you know, I mean, with, with, with these stories, you know, taking front stage these days, do, do you think it'll be easier to just identify um, th- th- that, that sort of thing and, and call a duck a duck? Probably if you, you know, and look at the letter of 150 some odd academics and writers and whatever who are warning against this cancel culture. Um, and again, I, I think that it's important to differentiate between canceling and calling out. Yep. Um, people are going to call you out day to day, but it's going to be pretty hard to get canceled, don't you think? I mean, Dell believes that, um, you know, my time is going to run out at some point. And, and that's something I've been thinking about, you know, that you're going to get canceled but or or, you know, in in the negative or the positive, you know, if not social media, you know, something I say cost me my job or 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 whatever, you know. OK. And, and, we, and we saw that with Paul Robeson, you know, so how can we not how can we not consider that today? How, how can we not consider that for 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 what we're doing? When when is our time? Um, going to be up and, and, and the and the good old, you know, status quos come back over to take over. Mm. Uh, my triloquy for the week, uh, I want to involve you. I want to involve you with this um, because we were talking about um, my challenge to a black orchestra saying the the first black the first orchestra that announces an all black season wins. Yeah. And. You were curious about, well, then why don't we do this with radio? Why sure. don't we? Okay, let me tell you some of the things that I'm thinking about in cancel culture and calling out right now. Um, for 30 years, I've been hosting this classical music and not talking about these issues. Mm. And in some instances, is because I didn't know any better. That's not an excuse, but that's what happened. And I see... Uh, I, I listen to the guests talk about the importance of having people of color in positions of power. And for a long time, I was dreaming about trying to help the next generation. By being in one of those positions of power. Right. Okay, so now I'm trying to square that with myself about, okay, well, the, is that a job that I should be doing? And... Then it starts to make me look at the work that I'm doing as a classical music host, how I'm not at every turn talking about the inequities and, and racism and things that happen, in, either because I don't know about it or I'm not ready to do it yet. And so I start to question whether or not I should be doing the job, mm. right? And then, that, and then I'm ineffective as, as a host. Now... I have to advocate for a process that I know that people of color don't like, which is time. Because on the 4th of July, I, I talked on a, a few occasions, not every occasion, which, you know, I'm, I'm getting to a point where I'm able to do it. But I'm not going to do it until I'm ready because it's not going to be genuine then. It's not going to be authentic. Mm. And on all of the things where I said things that could be 
by uh, like if a person of color was saying this to a white person, they would uh, Karen out or uh, I feel threatened, you know, or okay. do one of these things. But I didn't get any emails, so I'm wondering, Garrett, if I'm on to something. Well, uh, I'm wondering if me just pointing in directions and just sort of subliminally saying things, if this is not a tactic, if I'm not getting them ready for the real brass tacks conversations. Something that I've really learned is that what's most important is being heard. You know, mm. it's it, it, it doesn't do much good to stand on the mountaintop and scream something that makes total sense and is, is totally equitable, what, you know, whatever. Um, if no one is hearing you, if no one can receive your message and, you know, it, it's a slippery slope because it, it gets on the conversation of, you know, who, you know, why are we censoring that perspective when, when, it, when it comes to this? But, you know, I, I've, I've been to resign to believe that it's more important that a person hears me than you know um you know than not and and it's not that excuse me it's not that i you know i i censor myself or or wash myself up i'm just trying to make sure that people understand what i'm saying i i, I think that's what's important so you know as that applies to you i think that's fine but i do have to say you know we, we can pull up all of the quotes from from the great thinkers uh black thinkers of days past uh, decades past but you know that idea of time is just one that I just I cannot it. stand behind because, it. listen, because it, it's fine if white folks need time to kind of figure things out and settle in. That does not mean black folks also need time. We can be in these positions of power, making these changes and making the world more equitable while y'all figure out how to fit into that. I, I just don't and, I don't think that's a part of it for me. OK, so then it has to be a part of it for me then. And that's fine. And that's totally fine. But a person in a position of power should not be someone who needs time to sort of think and adjust that has to be someone okay. who is there okay so then what what would your response be to me saying you know what i'm worried about being canceled <laughs> what would you say to me because if i'm questioning the the job that i wanted or and 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 i'm not talking about being in the spotlight i'm talking about finding voices and giving them a microphone and helping them to shape a sound. So, my, my oh, go ahead, go ahead. And and to, for for me to have for me to listen to the interviews that happen on this podcast and not have this conversation with myself, then I would be dumb, right? Yeah. So, how can I advocate for the end of my own job? And and this brings me to my triloquy. So. Um, earlier this week, uh, Dell and I got into a conversation of, um, you know, allyship, absolute allyship, allyship with parameters and um, and, and the weird sort of tangent. Um, I'll go ahead and tell this story. The weird sort of tangent we got on was the idea, you know, looping back to um, where we're actually talking about uh, Louis Farrakhan more because he, he's been in the news and, and all that for, mm -hmm. for for what he's always in the news for. But um you know, he one of the things that he advocated for, especially uh, back in the uh, early 90s, was this separate self-sustaining black state. OK, where black people can live, you know, happily and equitably and in peace and, and, and all that sort of thing. So, you know, what Dell was talking about for folks who don't know, Dell is my boyfriend who is who is a uh, half white. <laughs> and, um, you know, he, he was he was talking about, you know, if does does his support for that. 
um, lead to his living in this separate white world in which he has to deal with the folks that, you know, he he's always tried to, you know, fight against and, and avoid and, and X, Y and Z. And that just get got us on the conversation of, OK, so is that the limit of your allyship? Can you be an ally and a supporter of black liberation up to the point of it actually costing you something, you know, and, and, and we go on, we went on with that conversation, but I think that applies to what you're saying, right? So yeah, you're, 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 you're discovering and trying to figure out what are the limitations? What are the parameters of your being an ally? That's 100%. what it sounds like. A hundred percent. You know, and, and on that, um, I think, you know, uh, when we get done taping, we've we planned on watching the uh, the movie Django. So next, so next week, uh, I'm I'm gonna get your your opinions on that since you've never seen it. But there's a scene early in the movie where um, the main white character tells uh, Jamie Fox, you know, Django, the the main black character, how much he hates the institution of slavery and racism and all that stuff, but understanding um, their their places in that world. You know, he's going to take advantage of that to help both of them, you know, to mutually help both of them. So, you know, um, and and there's big discussions that can that can happen there. But um, I don't know. I I think that, you know, what 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 we all have to uh, discover and, and explore in our own way when it comes to all oppressive systems is what role we're playing in it, what position of power or or unpower we have in it, and how we can use that position to to help break it down if if that's what we're we're going for you know i I've just kind of wrote something down earlier today. being an ally has to come with the acknowledgement of past and present complicity in the systems that oppress those with whom you're uh with whom you consider yourself that ally so you know so so basically. Um, you know, for me, one of the first steps is saying, okay, look, I am a part of this, you know, uh, racist structure. I'm a part of the patriarchy. I'm a part of, of, of whatever. This is a position I hold. Do I have parameters of my allyship? What are those parameters and what do I need to do to move beyond those, to erase those and to really make uh, my allyship um, absolute? And, and that's and this is, you know, an ongoing, ongoing conversation, you know, that's very nuanced when you uh, throw in the idea of intersectionality, you know, so um, supporting black and queer people, you know, supporting uh, black uh, women specifically, you know, as 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 uh, uh, who, who Malcolm X acknowledged the the most oppressed in America, you know, the black woman. So, you know, um, I, I think you're I think you're on a journey, Scott, that um, many people do not go on. And, and we've said over and over again on this podcast and off the podcast, real change is not comfortable. Real, real, real change is not something that, you know, feels good. And the more we um engage some of those unfeel goody moments with ourselves um i I think the more genuine uh the work is i mean do you not see that i do see that but you see the thing is is that when i listen to the guests when i hear someone like sister soldier who is who's a very familiar voice in my teens and 20s when i hear her say the good white person will see power and and to 25 years later have it ring true is number one embarrassing but number two to have the realization to go okay uh garrett i'm i'm questioning even my role in this podcast in this platform because this is a form of power yeah right and am i a stumbling block 
or am I d- detracting from the real work? And then I have the part of me that's saying, well, you know what? Men voted for women to be able to vote. So mm. why can't I, can I, why can't I play that role to be talking to other white people like me so that they're ready for a black person like you and not feeling like they're being attacked or torn down or whatever. Well, uh, you know, you know, I think we have to acknowledge in in that analogy you made, you know, men may have voted for uh, women for the right to vote. But, you know, think about all of the blood, sweat and tears that those, you know, women put in those. I understand. I'm only I'm trying to justify my position in it. Sure, sure, sure. And so um, I, I and and. You can back me up here. On four occasions, I've come to you and said, "Are you sure that I should be doing this podcast with you?" Well, who? Well, who else is going to do all the um, the Ableton stuff? And- um, <laughs> Evan. <laughs> okay. Well, um, listen. Um, I, I, I appreciate your work, you know, and, and for those of you listening, you know, um, I, I would I would ask you, you know, um, especially those of you who who are not black, you know, what what privileges do you have? What positions of power do you have and how can you a use that, you know, to 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 lift up um, and, and work toward the liberation of black people, a or B, you know, if you can't do that. How can you secede that power to someone who who can mm-hmm. do that? You know, I think it's a very important uh, question for all of us to ask ourselves. What if being an ally means being in a position of no power? Would that be enough for you? Would would, would that be a stumbling block? I, I, I just is, is, are you an absolute ally? You know, and, and I think if the answer to that is no, I think it's an honest answer that, um, you know, lays the path of work for, you know, actual, you know, something. It really is an amazing time because I, I think um, the the pandemic started it, but then George Floyd's murder probably compounded it, that a lot of people are finding out that their spot in the caste system isn't what it was. Right. Like that their, that, that their station isn't quite as good as they thought mm-hmm. they had it before. And so we're, we're, you're, the, the sound that you're hearing is the realization of this cognitive dissonance by white folks all over the country. I also feel like I'm hearing the sound of a refrigerator or you something. You had to bring it up, didn't you? That, I was going to work something out. That means it's time for us to wrap up. Um, yeah, thank you for listening. Um, arrest the cops who killed Breonna Taylor. See y'all next time.